Hello comrades and welcome to episode 8 of Sicko Mode. I'm Sian. And I am Joe. And what a special episode it is. We are going to learn all about Petro Capital and I definitely know what that is and understand it completely. <laughs> but just in case mm, I do. have any trouble or any of our listeners are wondering about it, we have with us two very special guests. Welcome to Edmund Hardy, poet, revolutionary, all-round renaissance comrade, and our newly appointed chief political economist. Hello, Edmund. Hello, good to be here. <laughs> I feel like I'm hosting a Radio 4 show. Um, <laughs> welcome to Chris Saltmarsh, also, organiser for Labour with a uh, Labour for a GND, <laughs> an author of an article that was out today in Tribune, all about the uh, oil industry, and also our new chief ecologist. Hello, Chris. Hi. How's it going? Very good. Coffee's really growing. Cool. Yeah, we have a massive... Sicko Mode Inc. is massive now. We have many employees and subdivisions. <laughs> and they're all on furlough. Yeah, exactly. They, well, they are furloughed, but we're not paying them. We're, we're okay, one of them. Yes. And they're also sometimes doing work. Yeah. <laughs> so. Breaking all the rules. We're extremely crooked. Um, we're like yeah. the Clinton crime family. But, so we have you both here because you are actually experts in the subject matter for today. Because... Anyone who is extremely online has noticed the graphs from the last two days. And the line is always going down, 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 right into negative prices. Yeah. And those graphs are about oil prices because mm -hmm. we seem to be in some kind of oil crisis. Now, mm. that's pretty much the <laughs> end of what I understand about what's going on. Yeah. So. According to political economy or to ecology, what is what is happening right now? Why is the world suddenly talking about oil? Edmund, do you want to lead with it? Yeah, so maybe I'll just talk about the last few days, which is which kind of masks the bigger issue. Because um, the last few days is specifically about uh, the price for WTI, West Texas Intermediate, um, which is a North American benchmark for oil prices. And so this is the this produced the, the news story that there was negative prices because people were suddenly had to get rid of oil. Um, and that's to do, so the core thing to understand is the difference between um, futures markets and a cash market. So there's a kind Wait, of- So what's a futures market? Yeah, so the futures market for all commodities is um, people trading, you know, months down the line, um, it's kind of divided up by months. So you're, you're trading now what's gonna happen in that month. And then the contracts for oil have a expiry date that's if everything's going a kind of according to the normal pattern of things, as it were, you sell as a pure futures trader, you would be selling your um, oil way before the expiry date, so you'd never really have to think about it. If there's an unprecedented global economic slump caused by a global pandemic, then that <laughs> system suddenly becomes very problematic, and you you get really close mm. to the expiry date, so suddenly there was kind of one day to go, and specifically this um, WTI. Uh, has to the oil literally has to go through one particular place where the pipelines meet in Oklahoma, and there was kind of <laughs> that's not ideal. Um, <laughs> if there's a sudden like loads of people who have nowhere to put their oil suddenly have to sell their oil. Wait, so, why does it all have to go through Oklahoma? Because um, it's just one the one um, place where it's all measured and graded, um, where all, traditionally where all the pipelines met. Um, wow. So, Usually when people talk about oil prices, they talk about the Brent price, which is the kind of seaborne global indicator, um, which has mm. didn't see the same crash, but is seeing a, a big reduction. Um, but I guess the crash made for a particular timely news story. Um, so basically what happens, if you're a pure futures trader and you have to sell your oil as a physical commodity in the cash market, you will just be slaughtered because those people know that you haven't got anywhere to put your oil. Like, <laughs> what the hell are you going to do with it? So that's so why you you'd get completely paying. taken for a ride then if you were trying to sell your oil right now. If it's the last minute of the... Uh, yeah. So basically, if you pass the expiry date, your oil just becomes real. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's an absolute nightmare. Um, <laughs> wow. Financialized capital becomes real. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what strikes me about all of this. I mean, it's very complicated but even to me it seems in incredibly precarious system <laughs> like <laughs> say very stupid i mean yeah, no well, one uh, yeah one i mean one yeah one of the things i wrote in this in this article for tribune was just kind of 
drawing out how the financialization of, of capitalism that we've like seen over the past few decades one of the real tensions here is that the whole system kind of operates on this kind of like computer system trading of assets mm. where yeah as um as edmund said you know most of most of those traders never see those assets you know kind of the the barclays or Citigroup or jp morgan headquarters don't have like you know spare storage space to, to spare kind of barrels of oil right <laughs> if, if you know if it comes to it in the headquarters in new york or dublin or wherever but you know but what we've seen is like these these assets these are real things in the real world so they're barrels of oil you know their houses they're throwing back to the kind of 2008 crisis and so obviously the, the system which some which kind of often will just kind of sit in parallel to the real economy you know making some speculators a whole load of money at times like this when there are kind of shocks to the real economy you know where the people start defaulting on their mortgages because banks have kind of packaged them up and um given mortgages to people they shouldn't have um or you know there's a global pandemic and kind of the whole economy contracts um all of a sudden that also has impact on on the on the financial system um and you know as as the kind of meme goes um kind of big line goes boom plummets down um <laughs> and and yeah and this is you know and this is significant i th- and I, th- I find it really interesting actually the last couple of days or the, you know, the last day or so um because twitter my twitter certainly was blowing up with images of these graphs and you know it's hilarious and people were kind of piling in with their hot takes about what we need to do with the oil industry um but when i was kind of doing a little bit of research ahead of this article it really wasn't very big news right like this was i had to kind of properly scroll down to find it on the bbc um you know obviously the ft and reuters were reporting on it but you know this this wasn't kind of like you know a major crash yet um it was but this is this is you know this is an interesting moment and basically all of the analysis i was reading from the likes of jp morgan um you know economists at other banks they were saying like this is just the beginning it's incredibly likely that something like this will happen again like they've not resolved any of the storage problems um you know this might happen for june's contracts too um so yeah it it, it may be it may very well be that this um this crisis this is just the beginning of a a bigger crisis and obviously you know it'll it'll have impacts on the real economy too that we'll maybe come on to well yeah you do very well of kind of explaining uh, how that happens in your Tribune article, like how there's these traders who are so disconnected from the process. But uh, what what is the real economy? I mean, I know from uh, reading Brenner with Edmund <laughs> what the real economy is, but maybe you could uh, explicate that for our listeners. Yeah, I, I guess quite simply, my, my understanding of the real economy would be it's just, you know, things that kind of actually happen. Um, <laughs> I don't, yeah, <laughs> maybe Edmund can put it in more kind of political economic terms but, how is it um related to i guess the idea of the productive economy yeah i mean i guess it is the more um the, the more kind of productive elements of the economy and so you know we can see that you know production of oil is happening um you know around the world like companies kind of explore for it they extract it you know you've got kind of real people doing the kind of the digging or operating the machines and that's actually producing something and that thing is being used you know it's being burned and it's producing energy and that's kind of compared to the financial economy um which is yeah these just kind of like yuppies sitting in their offices like tra- trading <laughs> it would trading things that could be anything right and you know it's a moment like this that it kind of comes in to roost and these guys are like oh this is an actual asset i have to find someone to put my oil yeah, so the world. The, I was wondering. Sorry. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, so the real economy is the world of um, production and transportation and um, actual needs being met and use values kind of circulating around. And then the kind of financialization of those things and those projection of those things into the future is the kind of um, the financial economy, which is not disconnected from it, but spirals out from those baseline actual factories and mm. actual wage labor. And I think what we're seeing, like, what I, what I think, you know, this, as I say, this this kind of crash or this price drop, which I think probably isn't really quite a crisis yet, um, is, you know, where we see where these things intersect. And so what the kind of analysts are saying, right, is that in order to get the prices up to a kind of reasonable level, what you'll either have to see is a... Um, a reduction in supply of uh, of the asset in this case oil so in you know mm. in real terms that kind of means producing less oil um or a boost in demand and so that that's just you know 
you that would probably come alongside the economy getting going again uh more transportation happening more production happening um that oil kind of being used and so you know and so actually what we see here is the solutions that are being put forward by these kind of financial analysts are ones that have very like real uh, impacts and so obviously the reduction or the, the reduction in um supply would mean a contraction of the industry and you know obviously that would have impacts for um people's jobs you know presumably there would be less jobs flying around in the oil industry and obviously the boost in demand would have very real impacts in that oil would be extracted um it would have all the kind of usual impacts of extraction it would high in emissions and stuff and so all, here i think you know one of the points i made was that you see this kind of like dichotomy between like kind of workers rights or employment and jobs um versus kind of climate and emissions um and obviously kind of as, as socialists like we um I, I think it's you know one of the things i've been working on over the past few years with the green new deal stuff is that we should be kind of trying to break down this um dichotomy because you know it's not helpful to have um the stability of the climate and the people rely on it counterpose with kind of workers rights and employment but i think what we're seeing is that this tension is is in some ways baked into our kind of financialized economy um and we yeah we see that where the kind of financial economy intersects with the real economy in this instance yeah i guess that's quite um interesting because i feel like that kind of dichotomy very much assumes that it's possible for us to like manage these crises and crises and continue like with business as normal just kind of like a little bit worse um, but obviously i feel like the when we're talking about the relationship with financialization this is like something that's not just it doesn't just exist um like the increasing financialization is part of like decades like many like several decades long trends and like continuing crises of capitalism like getting worse and more frequent um i was wondering i guess like thoughts on you know <laughs> the end of capitalism um so <laughs> I guess um, markets and future markets are, were born at the same time as um, the harvest seasons, and it's a way of initially a way of evening out the year, so you can farmers can mm. plant and like employ people now, and then they'll get the money when the harvest comes in six months down the line. Mm. So it's like initially it's, it's it's simply a way of kind of betting on the future to even out um, the flows of kind of production. Um, <laughs> over the subsequent centuries and centuries, obviously that spiraled out into these massively complex, huge um, global financial sector that financializes everything and wraps up these products over and over in insurance. So it becomes mm. incredibly arcane. Um, in terms of resetting, I, I guess the idea of a bubble and the idea of a crash and these kind of the idea of a business cycle of around ten years, where you you see a crash and a rebuilding, companies go bust, governments mm. have to bail out certain sectors. That's, that is in, in, in a kind of liberal view of kind of good management. That in a sense is like you want to regulate to try to make the crashes the least bad, but at the same time mm. you recognize they're kind of necessary for capitalism to operate and to support life on earth. Um, these kind of the climate crisis and um, unprecedented changes that we're starting to see now and the perhaps shortening intervals between different kinds of crises make that regulatory model look very shaky yeah. absolutely and I, I want to talk more about that uh, model as well and, and oil as a uh, specific commodity but uh, I thought I would share with you first a kind of a leak um, a world first exclusive so <laughs> I was on, I was on my uh, I was in one of my whatsapps earlier and someone said this absolute uh, truth bomb. And they, they said their housemate is a civil servant who is tasked uh, with solving the specific problem of the kind of current oil crisis um, that we've been describing. <clears throat> and they said, quote, big problem RE storage is that kerosene, etc., is the most valuable product from the refining process. But given the collapse of airlines, etc., no one is buying. But to make any other fuel product, e.g. diesel for food deliveries, ambulances, you also have to make kerosene because refineries all use fractional distillation. But if no one buys the kerosene or high-end products, the process isn't really profitable and you run out of storage. You have to start dumping the kerosene in the sea, which is not only an environmental <laughs> catastrophe, Jesus. but all the refineries will start hemorrhaging money and rapidly go underwater which potentially means no diesel for freight, ambulances, uh, and without rapid state intervention, uh, this government is clearly incapable of dealing with this. 
So I, I think that um, that insight from what the civil service are currently thinking about this is pretty useful for thinking about that tension between kind of profit and what we might term the real economy, kind of how the world system is uh, ticking over at the moment. But so, yeah. uh, but with that in mind, what kind of commodity is oil? If we're thinking as Marxists, what kind of thing is it, and what is its um, kind of real world uh, status and, you know, uh, the implications for the industry going forwards? Um, I think I would just say that it's, it's very close to, to money in the sense that it has to go everywhere across the global economy. So therefore, it's um, <clears throat> in terms of analysing how capital works and how capital essentially always has to be on the move, we can kind of see it actualized in oil. Um, to that extent, it is an indicator of global economic health, um, the price of oil, um, because obviously as demand slumps, the price of oil just has to go down. Um, <coughs> it's kind of, eco economists describe it as being at the center of so many different global value chains, that it's kind of essentially, it's mm. a commodity that's implicated geopolitically everywhere. Um, in Marxist terms, I guess you'd say that the use value and the exchange value are extremely close together. They're kind of so aligned um, in the sense that the use value is to kind of keep economic activity going um, in a, an economy centered on fuel and essentially on oil. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, w I, won't, I won't talk in explicitly um, Marxist terms, not because I'm a Marxist, but because I'm not quite skilled in that um, level of discourse. But I think what mm -hmm. I will add is like, I think there's an, there's an interesting thing here that this kind of moment is, is really bringing to light, but kind of anyone that's really seriously worked on kind of climate change and climate justice over the past let's say decade or so is kind of regularly facing up to whereas you know what we need what we need to do really to address the, the climate crisis kind of you know, strip away all, all the kind of politics and justice issues around but in a, re in a really kind of basic sense we need to transition the economy away from being you know so centrally reliant on fossil fuels oil gas and coal um to function right and you know the kind of the really easy story you can tell is like well okay well we need to um we need to transition towards renewables so that involves kind of winding down the fossil fuel industry investing in uh, renewables to take their place obviously there's complications that you figure out but that's the kind of gist of it but i think the real kind of challenge that we see is that you know this isn't you know often environmentalists will try and make a comparison with another issue like like, like kind of with the ozone layer like oh we sorted out the ozone layer we can sort out you know climate change too like with the ozone layer like it's kind of repairing right but like this this wasn't a commodity that was the very kind of fundamental thing of like modern capitalism right like you could very mm -hmm. easily just change the fucking thing in the aerosols um it's healing like you know what what we're really looking at is like a need to really fundamentally restructure um how the kind of modern global economy works like you know mm. uh yeah as edmund said like it's this is a commodity that goes everywhere, that flows everywhere, that is an indicator for the health of, you know, the global economy. And what we're trying to do is, you know, really just take that away. And you can't kind of just kind of yank it out of the current system and expect it to carry on working. Uh, and this is where kind of liberal centrist kind of policy wants fail. Like they, they think you can just kind of like <laughs> regulate it um, into not existing, you know, with enough regulation, with enough kind of nudges, with taxation and incentives, you can... You can replace the the energy base of the whole economy, but what you know, what we're really talking about, yeah, as as was alluded to, is you know, and the need for for state intervention, not just to kind of regulate this industry, but to actually entirely wind it down really rather quickly in a way that doesn't kind of leave workers and communities that are currently dependent on it behind. That does introduce kind of an entire replacement. Um, yeah, that's like that's a big challenge, right? Yeah, you'd think they. If they were interested in maintaining capitalism, they would have transitioned from fossil fuels already because it just causes such a fuss. I mean, even to a, <laughs> well, yeah. a casual observer such as myself, um, yeah. I was thinking and, and maybe it, yeah. maybe it's reductive to say, but, you know, these these companies like Shell and Exxon and that they were literally the first people in the world to know that what they were doing, like extracting oil, was causing climate change. And like not only did they not do anything about it, they literally then funded climate change denial. They funded like lobbying campaigns against really the most modern kind of climate policies. Like they didn't, you know, they didn't do that because um, it was kind of, you know, they, they spend like billions of pounds on this, right? Like they understand that they are existentially dependent on capitalism continuing. Um, 
and and yeah that they, they understand that like fossil fuels are core are core to capitalism um so yeah they if it was possible to have a kind of clean green capitalism where um where you could kind of at a reasonable cost all things considered um transition from fossil fuels to renewables yeah they would have done that decades ago but yeah it does not happen mm. yeah. i had a question about um and when you talk at the beginning about how this isn't like the I don't know anything about this. It's not like the global like price, but there's like a specific thing in the US. Mm. Um, does that have like then differential implications like for different states or is it like more, cause it's like extremely like globalized and connected, interconnected um, or are there like, if so, are there like geopolitical implications or not? Yeah, so that kind of ties in. So obviously the oil, mar- oil markets have a regional level and <clears throat> there's lots, you know, in North America, this is a huge story, and it obviously caused Trump to tweet that a bailout is coming um, because <laughs> this is huge within within the North American context. Um, like winter is coming. Winter is coming. The bailout is coming. Don't forget. Um, in terms of that geopolitical element, I guess uh, Saudis versus Russia has been the ongoing mm. since the autumn, ongoing head-to-head in terms of who was going to try to make a territorial market share grab at the same time refusing mm. to lower prices um, and with the US trying to arbitrate and Trump continually tweeting at them to say, come on, we need to sort this out because the global economy is starting to tank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite literally, that was his bargaining kind of method. Um, and essentially they want to, they, they want to kind of, um, the Saudis have, their, um, have the ability to kind of take more Southeast Asia um, oil supply mm. um, away from Russia, etc. And meanwhile, the US has these huge kind of shale um, resources. But all of these things mm. are, are predicted to probably be peaking or have already peaked in terms of um, the amount of act- at real terms act- actual supply of oil. So that's the other kind of mm. pressure on the whole, <coughs> the whole market. Um, in terms of transitioning, it's kind of, that's kind of interesting. I guess what Chris describes is a hugely kind of ambitious in a global sense like unprecedented response to an unprecedented environmental uh collapse kind of um at a level that capitalism and its and and its kind of planners have never actually managed to achieve um in a sense i guess the previous transitions from you know from wood wood and water to coal to oil have been um basically massively overlapping. So one of the interesting things that in a Reuters article I was reading in the energy section was about how essentially coal consumption is still going up globally um, in real t- in absolute terms, um, let alone all the other fossil fuels. So, that, so in fact, all of the fossil fuels added together um, remains at 81% of um, global energy uh, source. Uh, since 1987, it's just stuck at 81%. Um, so in a sense, kind of so-called emerging economies um, use a bigger proportion um, of fossil fuels simply because as those, as the manufacturing and also middle-class consumption patterns take, um, start just to start to use a lot more energy than they previously did. Um, and that energy uh, is reduced from fossil fuels. So it's, it's a, I, yeah, I guess I, I take a kind of very bleak <laughs> view yeah, yeah I, th- I think on that it's like it's that's a, it's a really useful point and i think what we've seen kind of until I, I would say you know the divestment movement came along and obviously the divestment movement didn't introduce this stuff but it really kind of mainstreamed it was this you know bef- before we had this kind of explicit confrontation with the fossil fuel industry by the climate movement and you still have it now in the wrong circles um is, is this kind of idea that yeah you just need to invest in renewables invest in renewables and it will kind of sort itself out but as i'm as i've been saying you know this, this investment in renewables and the growth of the renewable sector has just added energy into the mix but it hasn't it hasn't like yeah. effectively undermined the fossil fuel industry it hasn't contracted it um and, and yeah i think you know what we will absolutely have to see is a very a very kind of like conscious um concerted kind of across the globe kind of managed decline um for this industry and i think you know it's frustrating that you know even the kind of shining lights of um progressive politics over the past few years haven't haven't kind of brought themselves to like embrace that 
confrontation with like fossil capital like in the uk like you know jeremy corbyn's labor was by by the 2019 election had like a very ambitious like climate platform but it didn't it never you know they never spoke in the language of like we are going to take on the fossil fuel industry bernie sanders began to do it in the u.s which was like encouraging but there's never really been a kind of like bit of pop work to like popularly stigmatize um the fossil fuel industry and like the mainstream political um like arena like the kind of divestment movement has has done it it's been you know very successful on campuses and um and in kind of certain circles but that's i don't think that's ever really reached like the mainstream and so i think yeah the kind of the bleakness of a challenge that i see is like when it comes to and we're already at this point but when it comes to this point where we have to just take this industry and just like wind it down you know the points i make in the article like stop subsidies really ban kind of production um stop building like new infrastructure um and probably yeah probably nationalize like these these assets and just like liquidate them or just kind of wind them down really quickly like i think a lot of the public are going to be really confused about you know why why now like why is why are governments all of a sudden just kind of like taking this massive fucking industry and just like you know decimating it um because there hasn't been this kind of like lead up to it um yeah i think and i think that you know i think the reasons why that is is because you know there's a very strong lobby uh, coming from the fossil fuel industry that has associated its like health with jobs um i think you know the trade union movement in in this country and others hasn't hasn't been able for whatever reason to um to disassociate itself from that argument and so what we've seen is kind of a, a series of progressive politicians um either uneducated or like not not kind of feeling confident or able yeah to go after the industry and kind of make the argument that you need a state and just like centrally plan its managed decline so is there a sense that the left needs to kind of step up to the plate um, of kind of, you know, politicizing oil or at least kind of realizing that it's already a political flashpoint and that we need to have a kind of, uh, you know, class war rhetoric and kind of big green political platforms in, in order to kind of tackle it? Because I'm, I'm thinking of like how the Gilets Jaunes originally went out on strike in France over kind of rising gas prices, right? And that was I think it was taxation. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, taxation. But you know, like the cost of living and in terms yeah. of uh, gas prices was rising. I guess I was thinking about what you were saying before about how uh, like just, they just keep adding on like more different sources of energy that, for example, China, which I love to talk about, um, it, over the past like decade or so has been like investing massively in developing like renewable technologies but at the same time is one of like the largest um, purchases of like crude oil and there was like some articles about how like maybe china will be able to like <laughs> buy loads of oil <laughs> um because they're trying to they're trying to reach the goal of like filling up their oil reserves yeah um, by the end of this year um oh wow but, that then, but also like, like countries like a go fund yeah but then countries like uh for example cuba which is, was it like the first country to be like carbon neutral in the world? Like, great, because we love Cuba and the socialist. Well, I do anyway. Um, no, big but also, how much of that is due to, as a lot of these things are like, politi like political economic necessity, because it's been prevented from being able to industrialize by like US sanctions and stuff. Um, and that actually, actually like, to a degree, they're kind of trying to industrialize in a way. So I guess it's both a question of like political will and politicizing the issue but also just of like the reality of like global capitalism and how we can think about trying to like disrupt this yeah. materially very powerful system yeah just a, a couple of quick things on that like the china the china example is a really good one like often like kind of naive environmentalists will be like and you know maybe this is a useful like entry-level propaganda thing but it's like china has all of these renewables or you know has the fucking vast majority of electric buses in the world isn't that good yeah china but, you know, the belt and road initiative you know this is kind of china's like absolutely massive like project of investment um kind of across the world particularly across asia um um a big chunks of that is coal infrastructure like not even oil and gas like they're building coal stuff um so yeah so they're they're locking like massive parts of like industrializing developing economies into just the filthiest like fuels um and yeah and i think this links in with the um the kind of the second part of the point you make as well like i, I didn't i didn't know that cuba was um was car was carbon neutral but i knew it was kind of held up as like being like kind of environmentally progressive but i think yeah what we see is um 
con- countries that we might also kind of celebrate or you know have solidarity with or whatever to, to different degrees um locked into this kind of like global politics of um of kind of yeah of, of fossil capital or kind of oil capitalism like you know venezuela being an example where you know this is mm, essentially yeah. a petro state um and it's been it's, it's been able like other kind of like um, latin american countries too have been able to use their um their like oil wealth to fund like missions and social programs and the kind of the building of kind of like socialism um that you know we kind of like support really but yeah it's like there's a kind of yeah there's a tension there's a contradiction there where obviously like we think it's bad to continue to like extract fossil fuels you know there are indigenous kind of movements in these countries too like um asserting their kind of sovereignty in relation to some of these like fossil fuel projects but also like these are these are countries like relatively disempowered in the context of like global politics that are making the best of like the situation uh that they have and like cuba is like very much like for its like fossil fuels dependent on venezuela um and actually yeah and so you know what what we are seeing is like you know this is primarily like the us the uk other european countries that are really led on this constructing a kind of global capitalist economy reliant on fossil fuels um but also yeah china is currently continuing to do this um to you know whatever your kind of politics around china to advance its own kind of uh, its own kind of interests um and yeah it's like it's for the countries that are having fossil fuel infrastructure built in them like they are being locked in to fossil fuel extraction emissions that they will be blamed for by kind of like leading hard liberals in the uk or the us um for the coming decades i didn't know this about the belt and road initiative i love that initiative because of that song (laughs) all all about it yeah the Uh, children's song yeah they made they did a children's song to promote it and it's so damn catchy (laughs) did they include the coal in the song I don't think they did include coal, no. It was actually, I saw an article, it was on like oil news. You were right that this news is not that big because all the articles I found were on like oilnews.com. My favourite website. (laughs) And it was talking about the like potential like impact of this like oil stuff on the Belt and Road Initiative and how they might have to like diversify Mm. their like funding sources or like the energy use. Anyway, that was interesting. I had another brief question about... um, when you were talking about like countries like Venezuela, for example, I was also thinking about um, Bolivia, uh, Bolivia mm. um, and how obviously there was a coup there, which we hate. Yeah, we hate um, to see it. And that some would argue that it was in a way related to the fact that they have a lot of lithium there and that they'd signed like a kind of deal with China to like uh, extract the lithium and process it with like uh, relatively favorable terms for uh, Bolivia as compared with the deals that the US and like European countries tried to make. So I guess my question is kind of like, how do we also make sure that trying to move away from fossil fuels towards uh, like renewable kinds of energy doesn't also like kind of maintain this like imperial extractive international structure? I I mean, I'd say that was (laughs) an extremely good point and um it ties in my mind to the to conflict in Yemen and um, mineral extraction there. Um, and that also ties into the strikes on Saudi Arabian oil refineries in the, in the autumn. Um, that I, I would say that just the very mechanism of capitalism is, is predicated on this kind of uh, logic of extraction and yeah. that it's only by capitalism breaking apart um, that you'd ever be flung free of it. Um, in terms of just just on um, the history of uh, kind of coal in China, I guess it's um, I was I recently watched a documentary about the 2013 smog in Beijing. Um, it's actually it was really really interesting about the connection between industrial production and smog, and then um, the policies to actually uh, clear um, a lot of that off. Yeah. afterwards um and there are lots of lots of really good maps for example um showing residential areas and um industrial areas but there's in terms of um it, it can easily be a attack and um on um the idea that why should we kind of invest in renewables when china is still using x amount of coal but obviously one a counter to that is to look at you know where is the demand for the, the products or things being made in in a globalized system it really doesn't make sense to kind of single out (laughs) an image um yeah so 
one of my favorite all-time historical moments, as I'm sure you all know, <laughs> is the 1973 oil crisis. I'm obsessed Yay. with this oil crisis. Yeah, love everyone it. loves it. Our archetypal yeah. moment in modern capitalism. <laughs> no, yeah, it really is. Yeah, it really is. And rather than, I should read much wider about the kind of history <laughs> of the age that we're in, but mainly I just know about this one moment because there was an oil crisis uh, it might have involved Saudi Arabia. Now I can't actually remember. <laughs> yes, but, um, yes, it did, yes. <laughs> it did. Okay, that's good. Two for two. Okay, and so it was to do with suddenly, after the post-World War II boom, there was a declining rate of profit, right? And so suddenly everyone's, all, all these states are acting very kooky. Firms are getting desperate. Um, and we start to see the kind of retraction of the social democratic compromise that had existed. And through managed decline, we kind of arrive at the present day that we're in. Is that a kind of fair um, approximation of what happened? Um, so I guess the, the beginning of the 1970s is classically seen as the beginning of the downturn for uh, capitalist growth because there was the golden age post-war um, in which there's kind of a growth never seen before or since. Um, at that end of that growth period, um, the Bretton Woods Agreement, which was a kind of international post-war agreement um, to kind of foster a new world and um, bring more, uh, a higher proportion of the world's population within the lovely capitalist umbrella of, of higher li living standards. Yeah. Um, oh, I actually love Bretton Woods as well. <laughs> I listened um, to a radio play about it once. Bretton Woods was the name of the hotel they were all in, and Keynes was yes. actually there, and so was all of like the world leaders. They were all at this hotel where they made this Keynesian compromise. How fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, I mean, that's if the play is to be believed. I don't know if it was actually a work of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so, interestingly, it was an attempt to create a kind of managed capitalism, um, which... Uh, would avoid a return to the huge interwar crash that no one wanted to see again. Um, and no one obviously wanted to repeat the Second World War. So that was the reason for it. By the early 70s, America, American politics turned more inward. Um, and essentially, by creating booming economies in Germany and Japan, um, the American voters um, started to see dis uh, you know, jobs going away and factories closing. and so unpegging the dollar from the gold standard is the, the key thing and that had a knock-on oh. effect of um oil producing countries and um the, the formation of opec the our producing states of mm. producing oil suddenly finding with currencies floating around that they just weren't getting as much uh, actual money back for their oil the cost per barrel was floating around all over the place so they, <laughs> they realized that by teaming <laughs> teaming together um they essentially um, bargained their way back to getting around the same price per barrel that they got before the end of the Bretton Woods Agreement. But that took a huge global shock in terms of um, suddenly unprecedented um, uh, kind of global geopolitics being played with the most essential um, <laughs> commodity to be, to, for global capitalism to work. Um, but the interesting thing about that is that then in 2000, the 2008 crash, um, oil prices are actually high. And so that kind of forced the debt problem to be larger than it otherwise would have been. So oil is always there in every big global um, economic event. And the price of oil is always very telling. Um, and yeah, the fact that it's now extremely low is <laughs> uh, the, the geopolitical kind of result of that is um, remains to be seen. It's extremely difficult to predict when previously it was all about how high it was. I mean, yeah, the situation is reasonably unprecedented, right? Like you can kind of take a little piece of Spanish influenza, you can take a little piece of the 2008 crash, you can think about 1973 oil crisis, but nothing quite compares to the global economic situation now. But having said all that, if we are going to try and not just interpret the world, but change it, obviously, <laughs> we all need to collectively have a strategy. So we can't just have tactics where we're just going like, okay, today brings this, let's deal with it this way. We need to actually be thinking about the long term, um, particularly with the kind of uh, the end of the Corbyn and Bernie projects and quick succession and mm -hmm. this whole new kind of arena has, has kind of opened up 
uh, for better or for worse, that we kind of all have to deal with. So kind of based on the things we've been talking about, like what is the kind of next steps for us now? Which I guess is also a question about what do we imagine is going to happen next? And then also what can be achieved in say the next you know, few years by, by an organized left or an organized labor movement? Um, yeah, I can have a stab with that. First, I just wanted to come back to the question from before about extraction because I realized I didn't um, give an answer to that because I was ruminating it. Um, yeah, I just wanted to quickly say I, I I kind of acknowledge that like I think this is really like the central, the most sticky kind of contradiction within for like socialists or um, kind of trying to deal with like climate injustices and the climate crisis. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just like I think yeah, it's really hard um, because like kind of ideas around a green new deal, you know, whether you want to use that framing or not, basically to kind of invest to transform the economy to build kind of new infrastructure like that is gonna require the use of of these kind of minerals and resources which um yeah to, to lesser and greater extents depending on how you plan it but yeah that are currently um very often in the global south that are very often kind of at the source of like conflict and stuff and so there's you know i was reading a book one of the green new deal books i think it was the one that kate aronoff was one of the authors on a planet to win where they kind of discuss this question um mm. and specifically use the example of um oh i think it's chile where they also have um significant kind of like lithium um reserves mm. and there was this kind of tension where like the majority of like chilean like society supports like the public ownership um of lithium and the kind of like you know a kind of majoritarian like democratic oversight of like how the country uses this resource and then on the other side there was like indigenous um people and communities and nations like in chile who were asserting a kind of like so indigenous sovereignty um and saying well no like we should have like sovereignty over um over the use of this resource and like obviously they're like a minority within um within like a historically colonial state and so there's like that dynamic going on and i think this is probably what we have to reckon with and i don't mm. I, I mean i'm certainly not at a point where i can say like this is the strategy for um for guaranteeing resource democracy like around the world but i think what we have to be moving towards is a situation where the people in a country whether that's like through a national politics or through like a framework of like sovereignty um are able to consent to the use of um of that resource like whether that's by other people or by like a national government or domestic corporations or whatever um and yeah and i think like very unfortunately and perhaps excruciatingly like the transition that we're going to have to see in relation to the climate is going to have to happen over a time period like over you know really the next two three decades where i i just don't think we're going to resolve that kind of like um the way that resources are managed globally like th this is really kind of like global revolution stuff i do think you know as, as, <laughs> as organizers like we should be working like we should be demanding of our kind of like imperialist like western governments to be baking into all of its like policies its procurement policies and stuff like kind of incentives to promote um resource democracy to promote human rights and stuff and to promote a kind of responsible extraction so that's just a kind of like big kind of open question and then joe i guess to answer your question around strategy um I guess for me like there's roughly three prongs to this like there's just kind of like electoral route which i think a lot of us have either become preoccupied by or, or kind of like moved into over the last few years with with corbynism in the uk kind of sanders in the us but kind of other other things in europe and other places too um i think we're clearly at you know I, I, history will tell us like what this moment is and what it means certainly what comes next for me i think there shouldn't there certainly shouldn't be an abandonment of that strategy. I think the lesson we should learn is this kind of electoral strategy needs to be buttressed with um, with kind of other um, kind of building power in other arenas as well. So we need, you know, obviously we've learned lessons of how to like, navigate a political party. In some contexts, we've learned lessons of how to navigate state power. Um, but you know, one of the things we haven't really seen to, uh, to kind of complement those is like really powerful trade union movement really powerful social movements kind of rooted in, in local places. So I think, you know, the left should continue to organize within political parties where, where appropriate. So in the UK, I think we should continue to organize in the Labour Party and continue to exert pressure for it to be as radical uh, as possible. Um, but also we should we should be kind of taking seriously this need to revive um, and, and in some ways I'd say revolutionize the kind of trade union movement. You know, the trade union movement mm -hmm. um, 
it has been you know it exists i read a quote the other day like it exists within a context of defeat right i think we should understand it as as defeated and enduring a kind of ongoing defeat while there are kind of obviously pockets of like hope um like energy within it um mm-hmm. whether it's working with kind of smaller more dynamic unions where appropriate or working with the kind of bigger bureaucratized ones we should be building up the confidence building up the power of those unions from the grassroots um and really building a kind of labor movement because you know what for whatever has happened to the, to the unions they do remain kind of like lasting institutions of like working class power um that i think yeah we need to be like focusing on on building up again so they can like really um yeah really kind of make a difference in in this struggle and then the last thing i'd say is yeah this kind of like i think the words like social movements are thrown around a lot and can be quite like fabulous but i think what we have seen is like for all the criticisms that i like level at them like extinction rebellion and also the youth strikes like jonah's like what Mm -hmm. what kind of like effective social movements can do like they have um created space within like political parties for example to move further on climate like they have influenced Mm -hmm. like like popular public understandings and i think we need more of that like we need yeah xr youth strikers and kind of more more things that are doing mass mobilizations that are really kind of like creating space in the mainstream um for yeah for others to like move into and organizing communities yeah i guess um all i would add to that is in terms of um what happens next uh navigating probably huge public anger and huge um amounts of increasing desperation in in amongst global populations as a series of increasingly harsh um, crises um, squeeze living standards and in fact um, the covenant of state power of uh, keeping the population alive um, is going to obviously be severely tested and we're going to see it being severely tested it's obviously already being tested by coronavirus Um, that's already starting to you know in very mainstream media discourse it's it's being um measured and commented on let alone the combination of all of these overlapping crises um at a series of kind of points over the next five years um thinking about the five year <coughs> uh oil kind of um trajectory in which we'll start to see it even before this current kind of drop in prices it it was a kind of five year um uh, graph in which we go over the peak um and down towards the problems of supply so within that five years we're going to see all of these things overlapping um and for left organizing to to try to navigate that kind of public anger it ties back to what joe was saying about jean and um uh, taxation there there was also early in the blair period there was um um people uh, outside um oil tankers stopping oil tankers and moving around to the uk petrol tankers uh, because the price of yes. petrol was really high um and that hit people um, and that had that was actually really huge. I mean, hospitals had to were on the edge of closing down, and the army had to go around um, transporting petrol. So, you know, um, that's related to um, whether people can uh, reproduce themselves month to month, and how much money they have, and whether they're unemployed. Um, and I think all of those things are going to come massively into focus. But where their anger goes, and whether it becomes a transformative uh, left-wing project. Um, that's really a huge challenge for the an already kind of um, scattered um, post Corbyn UK and, and kind of post standards in the US and globally. But um, it has to be done. Yeah. <laughs> so you're kind of describing targeting uh, supply chains and such things. Mm-hmm. Is this the next step for Extinction Rebellion? They need to shut down all the supply chains. Well, that's that's a, there's an interesting note here actually. So. Extinction rebellions have really like pivoted in terms of their strategy for 2020, and I'm I'm actually you know one of the biggest disappointments I have about the like lockdown is that we're not able to I'm not able to see like what extinction rebellion we're gonna do. So basically, their strategy, <laughs> whereas like it, from like a purely like observational like, fascination, <laughs> um, their strategy when they launched was this kind of like very well reported like emphasis on civil disobedience and a very generalized like economic disruption and roger hallam's like frankly absurd kind of like theory of social change is that you just disrupt a load of shit and then like a revolution happens um (laughs) just like yeah and this is where the kind of like canning town like tube action came in this was like the logical extension it's like you just need to disrupt stuff um not kind of thinking that people actually get angry when you disrupt their daily lives and so actually you know this kind of hallam faction within xr that just wants to like 
do civil disobedience to as much of a degree as possible has really been marginalized and the strategy they've kind of put forward for 2020 see how much of it they get to do is to yeah be much more targeted and like target like um you know fossil fuel infrastructure target like gas um target like the fossil fuel companies um inexplicably target hs2 well that's a whole other podcast um and and yeah and i, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to see whether i'm really interested to see whether they will lose their kind of unique like the, that unique thing that they brought to the climate movement of just like kind of doing like crazy shit um in their like maturity because uh, it may be that they just kind of like they start doing maybe you know what you might call more sensible actions like targeting more sensible um things but whether that will um almost feel less empowering as you know you stop shutting down london you start shutting down fossil fuel companies but you don't necessarily see like the impact of that so do you think their salad days are over and they're just going to be like the red army faction just like blowing up judges <laughs> and Abduct- I hope they'll become like communist and not racist. Mm. That'll be good. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Like, there, there's, there's obviously lots that's like very problematic with them, but there's a lot of like very like decent people in it that just mm. found like the thing that they felt they could express for like environmental politics through for the first time. So I think I think it's a fascinating like thing. I think it's massively open for like being taken in all kinds of directions. So it might get it might get sick. Who knows? Yeah. But so but we we're describing the kinds of networks and such that might do kind of mass forms of disruption or other kinds of kind of intercepting supply lines but so how can we kind of uh how can the left kind of you know build a new hegemony or build a new common sense like if there is going to be continuous disruption both the global economy shutting down due to what might be an age of pandemics and because of continual capitalist crisis what is the best way for you know, for for ordinary people to kind of remake the world, um, like what kinds of institutions are necessary? I mean, Chris, you've described labour, but what are the other kinds of things uh, that we need? Yeah, so I described like the political party. I think the political party as a form is incredibly useful. I just read Comrade by Jody Dean. Um, Great wh- book. Which is Jan loves that book. Brilliant. You just book. made a big fan. I think it's an underrated book on the left. <laughs> And it touches, She's so good. It touches on this stuff. I think her, her other book, Crowds and Party, probably deals with it more substantively, but I've not actually... It is that. also good. Um, yeah. But Com- Comrade is brilliant. There's a recommendation, read Comrade, get it on Verso Books. Um, yes. So the, the party as a form is like essential. Um, mm. I've, I've mentioned trade unions as well. Trade unions is kind of like... Um, it, or, yeah, independent kind of like organisations of like working class um, power. Um, and then I think, yeah, you probably want like an ecology of like other... Uh, organizations so kind of much is made of this kind of like need for I guess like intellectual reproduction so comparing the amount of think tanks that like the left has um, to the right like um, always good to have a few more think tanks in there but crucially I think they need to be like related to movements or to like yeah to kind of institutions like trade unions and political parties like if think tanks are just like churning out ideas and no one's doing anything with them then that's just kind of like um yeah useless but if, if there's kind of like a close relationship between the social movements that you're building for them to then maybe demand like the ideas that um the think tank has articulated or for them to be fed into a political party um i think that's going to be really really useful and i think yeah in terms of like you know if we're talking about disruption and direct action stuff um like i said the bit of a climate movement i kind of come from like certainly very strongly uh, strong kind of direct action trend like i guess like it's kind of like fetishism of like um direct action and disruption is like criticized by like um alex williams and nick sernicek who like wrote inventing the future like they call it folk politics this kind of idea that like being disruptive is like immediately gratifying but not necessarily like mm-hmm. building the power or the hegemony that like joe describes i think where direct action is deployed and i think it should be like you want to be tying that to like a, the articulation of like a broader program you want like people in the public sphere like jeremy corbyn like bernie sanders whoever it is that comes next like articulating like why what is why the direct action thing is like good why the target is good and like but also what the alternative is so you you kind of want all of these things coordinated and i think an effective movement isn't like planned from the top like a kind of puppet no there isn't a puppet master being like here are all of the different things that are working in tandem you know it's necessarily kind of messy and contradictory um Mm. but you have everyone kind of broadly moving in the same direction and like you know productively kind of like pushing against each other to like yeah open up new possibilities well, maybe that's um, 
that could be a good topic to kind of conclude with is who who are the groups that have been doing good things this last month and you know what what has been happening that's effective um like we we often talk about on this show kind of optimism of the will like certain trade union victories that kind of happened in and around the pandemic so what what are the things that uh we have to be kind of uh, what's the good praxis going on at the moment i'd say just um any flashes of kind of lucas plan style uh workers taking over or factories whether that means um to produce ppe or whether it means um for example um completely changing um, production models uh, in the future. I think that's one of the things that I've been researching and kind of very interested in, and we have seen flashes of it. Yeah, like General Electric, right? They were doing, um, they had people kind of, uh, workers saying that they wanted to do socially useful things recently. General Motors, yeah, yeah. General Motors, that's the one. And Trump's saying, stop that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess the the one thing, Oh yeah, a bit of a different different perspective is that yeah, Acorn, um, the community mm-hmm. and tenants union. I think where what we've seen is like where they already exist. Um, Acorn has put on like a very effective like mutual aid like response um, to to the pandemic and the lockdown and stuff. Um, so that really kind of Bristol, I think, springs to mind, but Sheffield as well. That really yeah, that's a good example of where you've kind of built these existing kind of like structures and organization like on the ground and then in a moment of crisis like properly like comes to bear fruit but then i think also like after the general election obviously everyone was very disappointed with how that turned out and acorn has had just like a massive like insurgence i think not only of members but also like groups being set up so where where i live in oxford like there's a there's an acorn branch currently being set up and my understanding is that that's the case in like many other cities around the country and so there's there's definitely like obviously what what comes of that war will to be seen will, will is is to be seen um but yeah if, if that continues like that i think that's really energizing that like people are getting organized in their community and like we've seen that acorn is like very effective at organizing around housing issues but also uh, you know in sheffield that organizing campaigning for um for to bring like the buses back into public ownership so it's it's an organization that is very dynamic and very you know capable of uh, of hitting different things you know the pandemic absolutely Okay, uh, thank you to both of you for coming on. I've learned a lot. Yeah, I can't wait to listen to this again, just like a punter and um, <laughs> absorb all of the uh, information. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Great. Well, you, you have to come on again. You're official employees now. Absolutely. <laughs> Only if you put me on file. We absolutely will. But we also need to track your heat signature to make sure you're not um, unionizing. That's uh, (laughs) it's one of the hidden (laughs) sub clauses of your contract. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Take care, both of you. Cheers. There ain't a darker night than the ones I've seen. When you're too damn tired to even dream. But you come alive when the doghouse screams Oh, the old field's dark as the money is green From Transitory Momentary, a poem by Juliana Spar The oil near Bakersfield is heavy but it often benchmarks against the Brent blend. Brent blend is a light crude oil, though not as light as West Texas Intermediate. It contains approximately 0.37% of sulphur, classifying it as sweet crude, yet not as sweet as West Texas Intermediate. When the park is cleared and the building is built, it will headquarter an oil company. When this oil company names their oil fields off the coast of Scotland, they choose the names of water birds in alphabetical order, Orc, Brent, Cormorant, Dunlin, Ida, Fulmar, and so on. Brent is also an acronym for the Jurassic Brent Formation that makes up the Brent oil field for Broome, Rannoch, Etibe, Ness, and Tarbert. About two thirds of oil is benchmarked against what is called the Brent crude oil spot price. Petroleum supplies in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East often price their oil according to Brent crude's value on the intercontinental exchange if it is being sold to the West. The Brent crude oil spot price is set in dollars maintained by force. 
endlessly manipulated by commodity futures markets. The refrain is the moment when the singer makes it clear they understand something about what is being lost. It was obvious they had lost their country, it being taken over by bankers and all. It had clearly been rejected. Loved too much and gotten too little of it back in return many times. But none of this matters, it was obvious in comparison to what is now being lost for that night, even though the song is about a minor loss, about the loss of tongue on clit or cock, the singer seems to understand something about the other things that are lost. While a formation of police clear the far side of the park of the debris of its occupation, another formation of police on the other side shoot the new gases, ones we do not yet know by name, into another part of the park where people are now clustered. This camera has sound and every few seconds there is a pop. It is unevenly steady. The song is just about two people who are not near each other, who have probably chosen not to be near each other anymore. The song reflects and refracts the oil in ways both relevant and trivial in how it tells about what happens when one lets love go, when one gives up the tongue. It might be that only through the minor we can feel enormity. It might be that there is nothing to epiphany if it does not hint at the moment of sweaty relation larger than the intimate. For what is epiphanic song if it doesn't spill out and over the many that are pulled from intimacies by oil circulations? The truckers, the sailors and deckhands, the assembly line workers, those who maintain the pipelines, those who drive support in the caravans that escort the tankers, the fertilizers, the thousands of interlocking plastic parts, the workers who move 200 miles and live in a dorm near a factory alone, those on the ships who spend 50 weeks circulating with the oil, unable to talk to each other because of no shared language, and so are left only with two weeks in each year where they can experience the tongue in meaningful conversation. Life that is only circulations.